Welcome to ArcNext Sessions, episode 20. This week, we'll be sharing a conversation Amelia had with Brooke Hodge, curator of the current Thomas Heatherwick show, Provocations, at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles. Brooke is also the deputy director of the Cooper Hewitt in New York City, where Amelia sat down with Brooke last weekend. We'll also discuss the just-announced posthumous selection of Fry Otto as the 2015 Pritzker Laureate. The announcement was intended for March 23rd, but due to Otto's death yesterday, Monday, March 9th, the announcement was pushed up to today, the day that we're recording the show, which is Tuesday. Other popular items in the news this week that we'll touch on is Frank Gehry's Winton Guesthouse that just hit the market and the young architect that is proposing to turn dead humans into compost. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna, Amelia, and Ken. How are you guys doing? Good. Good. Donna, how was your week, Donna? How was the rest of your trip to D.C.? So the visits to the uh, legislators got completely snowed out because of the snowstorm on Thursday in D.C. The federal government basically said we're shutting the buildings down. So there were no legislative visits. However, Friday morning, the senator from Indiana, Dan Coates, had his chief of staff rearrange his schedule and meet with us. So I, I was actually very appreciative of that. And you know, it, the nice thing about it is that you're talking to someone who has probably never in his life really spoken to an architect about our issues. And he asked us some really good questions. One of the questions was, what are architects most excited about that's coming up? And so relative to the legislative issues that we were going after, we we talked a lot about sustainability and smart buildings and this notion that we can start to build in a way that is really much kinder to our planet and more convenient and, and comfortable for all of us humans. And um, he seemed pretty intrigued by that. So we'll see. We, we I wrote my thank you, follow-up thank you letter to him today, which is something you're supposed to do when you go meet with a legislator. And then it, the rest of it was just some good meetings. The national AIA representative candidates had a little um, discussion, uh, panel discussion, uh, were asked some questions so that we could start sort of thinking about who we're going to vote for in Atlanta. And we had some nice dinners and drinks with other architects. It was good. I was I was glad to get home, but it was uh, it was a good. I, I really enjoy grassroots. We are changing it next year. This will be the big change. Apparently, grassroots has been a leadership and legislative conference. And we're going to split those two components in half. Next February, we will have grassroots leadership happening in Detroit. And then in July, we will do the legislative advocacy session in Washington, D.C. So hopefully I'll get to go to both of those too. Very cool. How are you, Amelia? What are you up to? I'm doing pretty well. Um, I'm happy to be back in California. (laughs) I was just in New York over the weekend and got to talk to Brooke Hodge while I was over there, which is great. And I had another substantial interview with a person whose name I will not refer to at this time, but should be on the podcast coming up relatively soon. So it was a great trip, a really good trip, really amazed at I managed to avoid all of the horrors that were happening at LaGuardia um, (laughs) on the past Thursday because of the snowstorm. But overall, it was a pretty good trip and got some solid time in New York City before returning to beautiful, superior Los Angeles. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. We're going to get hate mail. Just thought I would stick that in at the end. I'm completely defenseless. I'm, you know, born here. So I'm send all of your hate mail. It cannot affect my opinion. (laughs) <laughs> how are you doing ken what's up i'm doing pretty well um just you know plugging away at work uh, working on some new projects meeting clients and um organizing my architecture library at home trying to figure out what i'm going to get rid of and then pulling out my uh good books so that's about it there's not much going on your shelfie last week was great i really enjoyed seeing that the shelfie bookshelf i bought a new book for my library it's a nice little i would say children's book 
It's called Who Built That Modern Houses? And uh, it's an introduction to modern houses and their architects. And it's written for, I would say, maybe 10 and up. Hmm. It's a really nice little book. Very nicely constructed. Is this some kind of announcement you're making? You're buying children's books on architecture? Ooh. No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> you know what I do is I, every year for Christmas, I have friends back east who I buy. I go to local bookstores and find really well done books, um, either graphic design, graphically done or just well constructed or... And I buy them for their children for the holidays. And I buy them all the same book. So I'm kind of the uncle that gives books. Yeah. <laughs> and well-designed, visually beautiful books. Nice. Yeah. yeah. That's nice. excellent. We actually, a friend of mine who's a librarian, those still exist actually, did a, a feature for Archonnect maybe about a year ago on really great books about architecture for kids. I wonder if that book that you got is included. We'll, we'll have a link to that. Yeah, it's a Princeton Architectural Press book, which I... You know, it's interesting that it was done by them because I haven't seen them do anything like this before. It's got our favorite fog in there, you know, Wright's in there, Corbusier, Rim Kuhlhaus made it. So it's a really nice book. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Paul, what's up? You went skiing, I think, didn't you? I did. Yeah. My wife and I uh, celebrated our anniversary in Jackson Hole. I just uh, got back last night. It was just an amazing trip in general, but I have to say... One of the highlights, one of the many highlights was the Jackson Hole Airport by Gensler. Really? It was such a beautiful little little airport, really, really nicely designed and so incredibly relaxing to be in. I mean, I, I even commented to one of the guys, uh, the security guys, and said, you know, I mentioned that this is a pretty nice airport to work in. And he was like, oh, I would never work in another airport again after wow. after working Aww. here. Yeah. Um, it was it was beautiful. And the setting, I mean, it was right in the middle of, you know, all these gigantic mountains, the Grand Tetons. So it was it was pretty gorgeous. We'll include some some photos of that yep. airport. Good architecture makes a difference in it people's does. daily lives, yeah. you know? I mean, that's solid proof. There you if go. it's good for a TSA officer, it's, <laughs> it's good for me. Jeez, I would not trade places with them in a second. <laughs> and it didn't hurt that there was this like gigantic moose just like resting right outside of the entrance to no. the airport, just watching people, uh, you know, Aww. return home. Wishing it could fly. Airport mascot. Yeah. Watching planes go off. <laughs> Trying to grow back its horns. <laughs> Did you come up with a name for the uh, mascot for the podcast? Oh. <laughs> I think you're referring to the uh, the post. Yeah, I went snowshoeing one day and we came across a uh, a freshly eaten coyote that a pack of gray wolves found. So I took a photo of its skull and Ken suggested that it is our podcast mascot, which we haven't yet discussed. We'll have to talk about that first. I, I think maybe the moose would be a better mascot than a dead coyote. I would prefer a living moth. <laughs> yeah. Precisely. <laughs> Can the dead carcass of this head be the this episode's podcast mascot? That would be oh, appropriate. Maybe. That yes. would be more appropriate. That would be appropriate would be with apologies appropriate. to Brooke Hodge. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Brooke. Or we'll yeah. find something in the Cooper Hewitt's collection that somehow, or the Carnegie's collection that somehow relates to that. And I'm sure we'll find some beautiful curatorial overlap. So before we get started on this episode, I'm happy to announce that we have our first podcast sponsor, BQE Archie Office. Designed and built by architects for architects, Archie Office is an elegant system that provides the tools you need to run a profitable firm while freeing you to spend time doing what you love most design. BQE Archie Office is a beautiful time tracking and project management software built specifically for architects. Let Archie Office take over the business side of your firm as you focus on designing great architecture. 
With simple usability, smart functionality, and a streamlined user interface, ArchiOffice is brilliantly designed to organize and analyze all of your business information. Go to bqe.com forward slash podcast and discover how ArchiOffice can help your firm increase efficiency and improve cash flow. That's always a good thing. I haven't used the software. We don't practice architecture in the traditional sense, but I've looked over the software and it looks actually really, really helpful to architects and, and small firms, medium-sized firms, large firms. So I would definitely check that out if it, if it seems like something that could help your office grow. Good thinking. And yay for sponsors. Yay. Thank you, ArchiOffice. We appreciate you being our first. Okay, so we're recording this on Tuesday, March 10th, and... Literally five minutes before we started recording, we got the news that Fry Auto was announced as the 2015 Pritzker Laureate. Yeah, this came very suddenly. The Pritzker website had not even changed its announcement that originally it was going to announce the prize winner on March 23rd, nearly two weeks from today. But they decided to make the announcement a little bit earlier on the event that or on the unfortunate news that Fry Auto had passed away yesterday, Monday on March 9th. And so they made this kind of half-dash announcement, but it's it's pretty big news and it's pretty exciting. And everyone is uh, trying to kind of deal with it, knowing that both now he will not be able to receive the prize formally. He did he was aware of the prize before he died, but the ceremony will obviously not feature him in person. And now the entire audience is having to deal with the fact that A, he's passed away and B, that he's won this incredibly prestigious prize. It was an interesting announcement because I think there was a lot of it kind of the news broke on Twitter and there was a lot of confusion because I, I know that uh, Joseph Grima, New York Times mentioned in Twitter that it was given to him posthumously. And I think that left a lot of people confused because... Yeah, it confused me. I had not heard he died. Well, well, it hadn't been reported. It hadn't been reported. Exactly. And I thought that that was really strange that the Pritzker Foundation would move up the announcement without really making it that clear that he had just passed away the day before, which is yesterday, as of the time of this recording right now, which is on Tuesday. That kind of surprised me. I thought that it would have been a little bit more respectful to maybe pay tribute to his life or make some type of announcement about his death prior to announcing the selection of him as the laureate. It, it almost seemed like they were trying to break the news before the obituaries did. Oh, that's so, I mean, I kind of agree with you, actually, though. It really would have been wonderful to just, you know, celebrate Friato on his passing for the next few days to a week. And then on the regular announcement time, the Prisker could break, you know, the, the silver lining or the good thing to me about the whole sort of mess is they told Friato he knew before he passed that he had won the Pritzker. So sort of to me, letting Fry just as the man and the architect be mourned in the news cycle and then on the regular announcement date, go ahead and say, well, we, you know, extraordinary circumstances around this when we're awarding it posthumously for the first time, right? They don't usually do that. And because we are doing it because Fry Auto just passed away so recently, I think that would have been actually much more graceful, honestly. I think you're right, Paul. I think the news would have definitely been included in the obituaries because it would have been disrespectful to not mention that he was the latest recipient of the award at the time of his death in the formal obituaries. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it was kind of a strange, but oh. it, it was an opportunity for the Pritzker Foundation to take that position of, you know, giving tribute to his life as a leader in the architecture world. But here's the thing. When a prominent figure dies, they don't automatically get their obituary in the next day in the New York Times. There have been plenty of people I've seen in the past few months who have passed away 
I've not seen an obituary in the Times till at least a week later. So it might have timed out anyway. But I think what I'm seeing now, I'm seeing on the Times, I'm seeing other publications finally hitting the news cycle. They're timing it with the award. So we can all say it with some cynicism that they timed it according to how it hit the news cycle. What's more valuable in terms of news, giving an award to someone who just passed away the day before? And that, that kind of storyline, it seems to fit with kind of the what happens in the world today. I totally agree. But what confuses me is the fact that there's no mention of his death in his biography, which is accessed, you know, directly from the front page of the mm -hmm. Pritzker website. You know, you need to dig into the press releases to, mm -hmm. to discover that he had just died. I mean, the fact that he's winning the Pritzker Prize right now is probably, you know, the best way to celebrate his life as an architect. But it's just a little bit strange the way that the news came out and lacked that detail. Well, here's the one quote I sent you guys that is kind of a, I think, a, to your point. And he told the Prisker officials, I've never done anything to gain this prize. Prize winning is not the goal of my life. I try to help poor people. But what shall I say here? I'm very happy. Well, look, I'm not a big Fry Auto fan. I appreciate what he's done for the profession and for, um, for humanity. But I think that's to me, says a lot about the individual who was awarded this prize. And that will be my lasting memory of, of him, not of his work, but of the idea that here's someone who's humble and his humility is thinking about others and not this award. And clearly the Pritzker people are more worried about the status of their award and not about the man who cared about people. It is. It is. I agree. And what you just said, Ken, Fry Auto came to my my University of Arizona, my undergraduate school when I was there as a freshman. And he was meeting with the senior, the upper level classmen. So I didn't really get any time with him. But there was a little video that they made in the studio. It was for all you people that are my age, you, this will be a throwback for you. The fifth year architecture students scored the little video with the Fine Young Cannibals first album. And I have in my head this vision of Fry Otto at the very end of the video. You can hear the Fine Young Cannibals in the background. And he is sitting in the studio talking to students and his hair is crazy, and he waves his hand in front of the microphone and says, just forget all of that and design for your people. <laughs> and that's Aww. how the video ended. Like, that was what he said. And that's my most personal recollection of Fry Otto. And what you just said, Ken, that, yeah, that quote from him, I just wanted to help people. It's, it's really perfect. It's really lovely. Yeah. The Munich Olympic Stadium roofs are beautiful. So just amazing. I, I was there in the 1991 or so, and they are just gorgeous and amazing. And um, it's also funny to me that now the Google headquarters seems to be using something that's, you know, very similar. Yes, Donna, that struck me as well, especially regarding the kind of progression from last year's prize of establishing this more populist almost image or a desire to serve like an overall public instead of a iconic image. And it seems like, I mean, it seems entirely coincidental, but I'm sure that whatever Google ends up doing with their design, whether it is lives up to the renderings or not, will be indebted to Fry Auto, that they'll will be something in there that could not have happened if he hadn't existed and done the work that he did. Absolutely. Well, I really like that quote that you pulled out, Ken, and also the story, Donna, because, you know, those are the types of things that don't usually get into the press or get communicated about architects, you know, their feelings about what they do and why they do it. It's, it's usually just about the work that you can see. And that's what's so interesting about some of the things that we'll be talking about today and what's going on on the website. You know, it's interesting that here is a, I would say, a pretty embedded modernist. His work is certainly uh, not a classical style. And when the discussion on the website kind of centers around, you know, the cold, awful, very harsh things about modernism, here's someone who creates structures and creates spaces and cares about people. And, and I think there's this kind of, there's this narrative that can't seem to break through and that these classicists on the website want to push that modernism is devoid of any human connection. And here's someone who's, 
you know, deeply connected in principles that are very centered around the human and, and humility and, and the human quality. I think we wouldn't suggest or anyone that is now hearing about his death, would they going to suggest that we should tear down his buildings because they don't fit to some kind of traditional paradigm? I mean, it's just, you know, like I said, I read that quote and I said, you know, I read the, I read the rest of the piece real quickly. And that was the thing that I took away from this architect. So. You know, I think that early modernism, there was so much optimism about trying to make the world better for people, for regular people. And one of the things I read just in the last, you know, 15 minutes since we just learned this news, that his very lightweight structures were very much as an alternative to the very heavy German neoclassical Albert Speer, um, that he was really trying to move away from that. Well, I'm very interested in seeing whether any major academics or major architectural theorists are going to come together and, and create a Fry autobiography that is like comprehensive now. I don't know whether there's already one that is considered the authority, but his life is remarkable, having been a soldier in World War II and having been a prisoner of war and having done a lot of his early engineering training in the context of a very, very fraught German society. And so the idea that he kind of then came to this stature and did all this very important and progressive and very dissonant with what otherwise Weimar Germany would have been is very fascinating and clearly has paid off in the end. Well, we've already published a piece about this win for Friato, and we'll likely be covering him and the award more by the time this episode airs. So go to arcnac.com to get more information about that. This news is so new that I think, you know, we might be able to say some more about it next week, but I think we should move on to some of the other issues in the news. What do you guys think? What about this Frank Gehry uh, Winton guest house news? Just hit the market. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I... <laughs> Amelia, you want to do an uh, introduction? <laughs> Only, I mean, I just, I think we should maybe even discuss or have a, a whole trend where we just talk about the aesthetic expectations and allowances given by guest houses. Donna, I think this is something you brought up importantly in the comments is that if we just, instead of looking at this as necessarily a preservationist issue or a historical issue, but just look at it at this property now coming on the market as an instance of a young architect's growing career and now being Frank Gehry and now he's grown into another Pritzker winner and is still practicing an incredible, one of the, you know, the best known architect on the planet. The discussion of whether or not this building should be sold or how it, whether it should be demolished or whatever, it comes down to this point in the past where Gary was gifted this incredible opportunity to design a guest house. And usually people who are designing guest houses or hiring architects to design guest houses have the discretionary income to allow incredible experimental forms to happen. So that seems to be the crux of the argument around this building is, is whether or not that makes it enough of an interesting piece of architectural history to preserve or whether we should just, yeah, get out. As some people in the comments are gunning for, just bring out the bulldozers. You know, I think there's a legitimate question about the fact that it's already been relocated once and it's going to have to be relocated again, it sounds like. But on the other hand, and the whole question of guest houses as these places where young artists can experiment with form, experiment with their ideas. The mother's house, of course, is also a, a similar, although not quite the same, because yeah, when you're when you're designing a freestanding guest house, you clearly have some money to throw around. And I have said always that Frank Gehry to me is an artist. He is a, he does architecture, but he is much more of an artist mindset, as far as I can tell. And you know, there's some early Picasso sketches that are pretty bad, <laughs> but the people still collect them because they are, you see in them the marks of the master that's coming. And I completely think that's true of this little 
the guest house, that it shows very clearly the place where, where his work was coming from and how his experimentation has progressed over the years. In To me, he is one of the few real star architects that is still really experimenting in ways with every new project. I, I just don't think he phones it in ever. Uh, I don't. So I would love to see this little guest house get saved, obviously. It's a neat little building, and it's clearly the work of someone young. And then you can look at what Gary's doing these days and say, yeah, that's the work of someone who's mature. Well, all those non-parallel walls would make a great recording studio. <laughs> They'd help. Should Arconnect Sessions buy it? Buy it, Arconnect <laughs> Sessions. You can move it to my backyard. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the only fine print in this sales that it has to be moved. Yeah, yeah. For those of you who aren't familiar with the news yet. What do you guys think about the comments? Well, I, I, I'll stick with the, the, the central theme is that they, this should be torn down. For, to what end? To satisfy your desire to embarrass another architect? You know, I, I have a habit of not naming names on, on these podcasts because I don't think, you know, if you're, if you're going to stay after you've been invited to express your commentary on a podcast to kind of engage in the discussion, I just don't feel, you know, it's necessary to kind of name names. But the general tone of the conversation is just kind of, it's ridiculous. I mean, I would kill for this kind of experimentation. I mean, you know, I think about my own backyard and I think about this building and I think about maybe why don't I just do that myself, create something just to kind of experiment. I mean, here are people with means. Their first house was a Philip Johnson design house. And we all know that Philip Johnson was really connected with Gary around this time. And they were doing these things that kind of, there's a kind of a concert happening here where one would do one and the other would do something else. So there was this kind of pairing. And I think there was a, was it the Lewis was going to have, I forget the gentleman's name. He was a really uh, wealthy man. And I think he wound up designing something with Gary later on. It was some kind of large, um, um, public building or a, an addition to a campus, but there was this giant Frank Gehry house that was going to be done with some pavilion that I think Philip Johnson was going to design. And, you know, Donna's right. I mean, everything I read about Gary, the articles I've read about early Gary, he always talked about he didn't hang out with architects. He hung out with sculptors, LA sculptors. And he talked about all the different types of people he used to hang around with. So this is clearly an object. Is is it something that we would want to live in? Eh, maybe not. Is it something I'd like to spend a weekend at? Yeah, why not? I mean, I could easily see this building being relocated to the Minneapolis Sculpture Garden. It's undergoing a renovation right now, the entire site. And this would be a great addition to that. It would be a purposeful and a well-founded purchase by by the walker to get this piece into a place where it would be accepted for what it is, a, a kind of a habitable piece of sculpture. And and I find the idea of tearing anything down by another architect just unseemly and kind of, you know, just repugnant in various ways. I mean, I, I like the idea of other things, but, uh, you know, just tear it down and, and kind of just be, it satisfies. It's kind of just, um, what do you say? Really, I think that's really interesting. The the proposal that it be relocated as a piece of effectively as a folly to be relocated as a piece of landscape sculpture, because, you know, in a way, the idea of preserving architecture is impossible because the preservation aspect, the reason for preserving it would be because it's valuable enough to still want to be used and to be used as architecture. It has to be inhabited or in used by humans in some way that is more than just as a object on a landscape. But Given that the project scale allows it for allows it to be moved in this way and maybe used in a type of, yeah, public garden scenario or at the Walker, it's, I think that's a great idea and could be really effective in preserving the actual project without you know making it into a a huge preservationist issue. I agree. I think that would be the most appropriate way to preserve this structure. Ken, are you going to write a letter with your proposal? <laughs> 
Send them the podcast. Yeah. Just email them the podcast and say, hey, hey, Walker, I would go I'm, visit I'm it. using my audio signature yeah. right now to this podcast. And the other thing that kind of pops up in this in this thread, and I think it's this thread, and it might even be the Paul Rudolph, because these are very similar um, in tone, is you know the idea that the architect is somehow responsible for leaky buildings, and that somehow is the you know they have to bear the response. I, I never understood that. And if somebody could point to me in the AIA contracts where it says the architect is responsible for means and methods and for construction of these buildings, I, I'll be happy to up my liability insurance. I mean, but as far as I know, unless Gary was out there with hammer and nail building this thing himself, you know, and it's been taken apart once already. And who who knows? I mean, I don't think Gary was responsible for then sending construction documents to show how to separate the building and then reassemble it. We have, you know, buildings are built by humans and not everything works perfectly. And we have to look at the whole process. And somehow we point at Gary and say, when buildings fail, when his building in MIT leaks, yeah, we make fun of it. I make fun of it. Everybody makes fun of it. It's kind of fun to laugh at, but he's not responsible for that. And it's not, as I've said over and over, a leaky roof, a leaky window. These are not metrics by which to judge a piece of architecture. You know, you can judge your your contractor's work on your garage by that metric, but a piece of architecture has to do, and we've had this conversation also on Arconnect about, you know, there's an intent there. There's a conceptual intent that's then followed through either well or not. That's how you start to judge pieces of architecture. Every building's going to leak sometime. Every building's going to have window issues. Every building's going to have flooring that buckles when it gets too hot and there's not enough expansion contraction between the floorboards. That's part of inhabiting a building. And I love to see those worn out and and worn in essences in buildings. I was just in D.C. last week, and uh, as I said, and um, the stairs, the brick stairs going up to the second floor of the National Building Museum have that lovely worn in curve, you know, of Mm. feet walking up it for 100 years. Actually, Donna, do you know why? Why? Tell me. We learned this when we were at the Hot to Cold exhibition. It's because they kept horses on the upper <gasps> floors. So the horses were the ones that actually wore down those, the, the That's awesome. This is, yeah. an alleged, this is the allegedly the, uh, the floor. Well, this is what the director of the uh, National Building Museum told us. Yeah. So. Oh, that reminds me of the, that Charles Medede piece that I link to frequently where he says, buildings are made for the human. They're not, a, a horse would hate a bed. <laughs> Apparently in this case. Well, I bet the horses did hate those stairs. They probably did hate them. The rise to run ratio was also very different. Very odd. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, an uncomfortable yeah. feeling walking up and down the stairs. In, uncomfortable in a good way because you know, it made you aware of, of the architecture. But yeah, it's an interesting backstory. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I mean, back to the issue of preservation. I think it's unfortunate that, you know, I think so common when, when uh, discussions about preservation happen about uh, preserving architecture the focus is so much on the negative aspects of a building rather than looking at the value of that building, the unique value of that building, because, you know, there's no building is perfect. It's easy to find faults in any structure. But why is that always what everybody is so concerned with? You know, why is it not the unique value that that structure brings to to our environment or to our culture that that's the focus? Especially when it's going to be moved anyway. It's not as if that it's keeping anything else from happening in that same way. It is just, it's going to be moved. Why not move it properly? Well, and these kinds of ridiculous discussions that happen don't happen in Europe. They don't, for some reason, they're, I don't think, I think they're uniquely situated here in America. We, we don't place value on architecture. We don't have a real sense of, of what the value that architecture brings, either culturally or, you know, aesthetically or to just... 
to the everyday. So it's easy to tear down because that's all we know. We tear down old buildings and we've in this city has made plenty of mistakes around that. And those buildings were definitely salvageable for some other purpose. I'm not saying every building has to be salvaged, but there's certainly a value. And one of the things that I've always remembered, and I kind of um, think about it a lot when it comes to these kinds of conversations, that Stephen Hall, one of his early book, Anchoring, he did this bank, I think it was in New Jersey. And shortly after that, it was a small one-story building. And I think not too long after it was constructed, the building was torn down. And here's a, you know, and I'm like, nobody knew. I mean, Stephen Hall wasn't Stephen Hall. I mean, he was, but I mean, he certainly wasn't known. But that building doesn't exist, and I don't have a sense of it. All I have is, is a, I've seen the drawings for it, and I really don't have a strong sense of, of that building anymore because it's gone. So I don't know if I love it or hate it. And, you know, here is a building that clearly had value for the people that it was built for, and it was valued and it was put on St. Thomas's site. It was moved, I think, maybe 15 or 20 miles, and it'll have value again someplace else. And it's interesting that Americans and American architects have just, you know, we get divided easily, where I think in Europe, where it's much more appreciated to have a modern piece of architecture sitting next to a building that's been around for four or 500 years. Here in America, if it's 50 years old, it's a teardown. If it's a modern piece, it's a piece of shit. If it's something that is a federalist building, we got to save it. And it's ultimately has value because um, somebody, it's a traditional style and it satisfies all of these ambiguous, classical, non-relatable, human, pagan bullshit that it's just, it's infinitely short-sighted and it's not forward thinking. I have a solution to this problem. Twitter recently, or maybe around a year ago, relocated a original frontier cabin from like Montana or something into its office to use as a lunchroom. It is a log cabin. It was fully reconstructed back in the office. I presume cleaned in some way. And now they use it. So done. We need just like a giant building sugar daddy to swoop in, purchase the building, move it to their corporate headquarters and use it in some type of semi-ironic uh, lunch quarters. This is what it's come to. Come up with a hashtag, Amelia. What's the... <laughs> What's the hashtag for the move going to be? We'll get get Twitter to do it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I could come up with something clever on the spot, unfortunately. We'll think about it. We'll put it in the show notes. uh... Winton lose some. Oh, nice. (laughs) Nice. Winton lose some. It could be an outhouse or something. Speaking of compostables, maybe we can. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Maybe we should move on. You know, I really wanted to put a bid on the Unabomber's place when he got caught. So that was a very interesting architectural structure. Yeah. We should have saved that too. Whatever happened to that? (laughs) Yeah, whatever did happen to that. Did that, what did happen to that? that one. Ooh. <laughs> that's the one facebook has it's where oh, their trust engineers work out yeah <laughs> no i actually i think it's an ironic piece in the center of the courtyard at the apple headquarters oh, oh god yeah <laughs> right in the middle of the donut yeah because he was railing against technology all the time so <laughs> yikes that's where johnny designed the apple watch <laughs> <laughs> we haven't even touched on the apple watch today oh, oh yeah but it's not oh. about architecture that's right wearables moving on So the next topic that we wanted to touch on today was an article that is getting a little bit of a move around recently, Um, an article about an architect named Katrina Spade, who has made a proposal for a new format of burial. She's proposed a vertical cylindrical structure where humans would effectively compost. They would be placed at the top of this tower and laid out in the open on a particular cocktail of materials that would allow them to slowly compost naturally over time. 
in a sanitary and use and up to whatever would need to be met way. And Donna, I believe actually you posted the piece that um, kind of detailed this a little bit more. Yeah, I actually found it in The Stranger, which is Seattle's alternative weekly newspaper. And it was a really actually good article, not just about this architect, Katrina Spade, but about attitudes towards death in general. Um, and I read, I read the book Stiff by Mary Roach uh, about a year ago and um, loved it. And I've been dealing with some questions about death lately in my life, in the life of my loved ones. And um, so it's something I've been thinking about a lot. And uh, I loved this notion that, that one of the beautiful images that we posted in the article was of the family carrying the body in this sort of sack, sort of a, not a coffin, but the body just wrapped in a shroud in a cloth sort of carry sack and um, carrying it to its resting place. And then you come back several, I don't remember, months, a year later, and you can gather the compostable material. And part of what I thought was lovely about it was what she said in the article that that it's not what the architect said is, um, when you come to get this body back, you will also be getting some of your neighbor's body because all of the bodies are placed into one sort of central composting place and stacked on top of each other. As anyone who's done composting knows, you put things in and then you put more on top and it it piles up and it gets hotter near the bottom. And the notion of this as a sort of collective experience of several bodies coming together in the earth, I think is lovely. I, I have long been sort of really frustrated with contemporary burial technologies, which are all about basically isolating the body. And um, it just feels extremely unnatural to me to do a concrete vault and then a lead-lined coffin and then uh, embalming fluids and all of this stuff just feels wrong to me. It feels very unnatural. And I am not the only one feeling this way. This is a new trend in the funeral industry. And I thought this one, because it has this architectural component, which Katrina actually did a whole building design for it um, and renderings, I just thought it was a fun thing for us to talk about as architects. I think it's a beautiful project. And Donna, just to expand a little bit on what you were saying, also trying to think about these things, both as a design issue, effectively a a job has to be done of storing and dealing with these bodies, but then at the same time, also a cultural issue of how you are trying to balance so many different inputs at once of being both, might you say, the client in this scenario of like the loved ones of whoever has passed away and trying to figure out how to best later rest the body while at the same time going through what needs to be done and what their personal wishes are. Because, you know, if you want to be shot into the space, that might be all well and good, but it might not actually happen. So having that balance of personal intent and cultural allowance is incredibly important, especially with something that is inevitable for everyone. And I especially like what you said about the communal aspect of this, because I think there's been a lot of uh, discussion about cremation that kind of brings up this topic of communal burials, because obviously cremation is by some people seen as more of a sustainable option or at least a... um, even though it isn't necessarily, but as a way to not deal with the long-term faction of leaving someone in the ground. But there's been so many unsettling studies about cremation and what you actually get back, what the loved ones will actually receive as their loved ones remains. And it's not at all 100% foolproof that all of that belongs to the person you thought it did. So I think it brings up a really interesting other way to recognize that as a nature of whether we should preserve the body as a singular entity at this fact, or whether there's another way to deal with it entirely. And the design of it and yeah, the building renderings I thought were fantastic. Yeah, they're lovely. Apart from the architecture, this points to a broader issue with our inability to talk about the end stages of person's life. Absolutely. I mean, I may agree with this idea. I think it's important, but I will say that it needs work. It is 
a bit rudimentary and almost first year in its conception. The idea that a few family members going to be carrying my loved one up to the top where other loved ones are potentially, because the process does take a while. And the process is to take these, your loved one to the top of this so that the decomposition happens over time. I would be seeing other bodies and, you know, I'm processing, I'm having a difficult time as it is processing my loved one's death and to see other bodies potentially lying there is, is right now it's unsettling for me. You know, I'd have to be a very different person from this point going forward to accept this as a premise. I have to have a deep processing of that event. I mean, I remember when my brother passed away, it took my mother probably 45 minutes to an hour to just go to my brother's casket, just to see him lying in state for the for the wake and he you know he was cremated and but that whole process was it is not the processional is not as easy as this would lead you to believe and it it requires a much deeper and adult conversation and i believe that there are people out there who are very much on board with this and they are very unique and special people that i don't think the mass is ready for I agree with you on a lot of those points. And this just brings back to me that well, it was actually a very um, stunning moment for me at the end of Mary Roach's book about bodies. She talks about how people make wishes for what they want to happen to their body, but she ultimately came down to the belief that the survivors are the one who really will make that determination. And that if she wants to be cremated, but her husband feels that her family needs a viewing and needs to go through the ritual of a burial, then it's important to the living to have that ritual. And so the notion that that you make your final wishes, but ultimately it's the people who have to live with the decision-making afterwards that should be able to prevail. I actually agree with that. I disagree with that. Do you? You think? Because if you value that loved one when they're alive and they're no longer here, that value should not go away. And I know this, I know Don is, I know what Don is talking about because it's, I've, seen, I've heard about it and I've seen it in the news where I mean, I think it happened with Casey Kasem, just as a real cultural connection. It's happened with him. So there's this infighting that happens and there's this unwillingness to kind of, my mother had a hard enough time with my brother. And then before that, she had a hard enough time with separating from a dog. I mean, she couldn't allow her humanity to see that this creature was suffering and and she couldn't get herself to separate. So I, I think if you value that person in life, you should value them in death. And if their wishes are their wishes, and they choose to go this way, it is incumbent upon you to find that in your strength, to find out, remember what you valued about that person and follow through. I mean, I would do this. This would be something that I would be totally into because I'm into the processional, I'm into the ritual. And, you know, if you can't follow through with it, I'll hire, tell me you can't follow through with it and I'll pay, I'll pay people to do it. Stand in for me or stand in for you and they can honor me. Well, no doubt it's an extremely difficult thing to even bring into the conversation because there's so much weight attached to this that, that and so much uncertainty. You know, there's new discoveries made all the time about what happens in near end of life just biologically and the mental and psychological experience of the person leading up to their death for even weeks where sometimes the intent is not always in line with what they may actually be communicating or or you know for better or for worse. But what I think is so fascinating about this one proposal as well is that, you know, this is not traditionally seen as the realm of architects. And what do you guys think? Do you think that as practicing architects, do you think you are more 
prepared or in some ways a better authority to give some type of advice or proposal on these types of issues than the layperson. Well, she's not doing this. This is not just an architect here. This is a team well-established team where there's professionals across various disciplines. So this is not an architectural proposal. This is a team proposal, which I think is, I think the idea and what's described is, I rather glibly said it was first year and, and I think it's very poignant. I just think the notion that someone will go through this process is rather difficult to conceive. And I think the process itself is a little odd. And, and like I said, you see all these bodies placed on and at different stages of decomposition. It, that would be a little unsettling for, I won't say for a few, I'd say for most people. <laughs> I think most people would find that very unsettling. It's not something you deal with on a daily basis. But I think as an architect, why not? I mean, we design funeral homes anyway. We design churches. We design, we design the environment which we habitate. So this is one other place where we will habitate, either alive or dead. We will be there. You know, I don't want to sound super um, what crunchy granola about this, but I, I have a book on feng shui, which I read back 10 years ago. One of the things I thought was lovely from it, and, and I am not a practitioner of feng shui, is this idea of ritualizing very small moments. And I think architects always do this. The threshold, you know, a threshold moving from one place to another, that's a ritual moment. And as architects, we can imbue that threshold with as much ritual or not, depending on how we design it. You know, the uh, Scottish Parliament building by Enrique Morales has these beautiful inset bronze arcs in the floor where a door with a wheel will swing open and the, the bronze marks the, the line on the floor where the door swings. And, and that creates a sense of ritual and of of fitting together and understanding. And, and I think one of the questions in the thread and sort of what, Amelia, what you're posing, I think architects are taught to think about rituals and where rituals happen in our lives already and what things should be given more or less ritual importance. So it's a hard question to think about redesigning rituals of death, but, you know, architectural projects and art projects are one of the ways that that conversation can start, obviously, as are things like movies and whatever. It's, you know, always within culture, there are discussions that happen around people proposing an idea that seems completely unacceptable at first, and yet things frequently come around to those becoming real. So, so yeah, it's, uh, it's I don't know, it's a, it's a tough question. Well, Donna, I noticed in one of the comments, you mentioned that this project is important because it gets the conversation started. And I totally agree with that. And I think that going back to what you said earlier about how we need to kind of reinvent the whole process of, you know, how to deal with dead bodies. It is, it is a real issue that needs to be addressed. So I, I love this project because it's getting people talking and it's getting people thinking about what we're, what our current practices and, and how we can improve that. So I think it's time to move on to our guest. Amelia, you just got back from New York where you spoke with Brooke Hodge. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Definitely. Yeah. So we spoke with Brooke Hodge, who last July became the deputy director at the Cooper Hewitt, where she is enjoying a incredible new expansion that the Cooper Hewitt also recently opened. They nearly doubled their gallery space to do exhibitions and such. So it's very exciting. And she's coming in at a very ripe time, especially having just kind of launched or recently put out the Heatherwick exhibition called Provocations, which is currently on display at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles until May 24th. And so I sat down with her in her office at the Cooper Hewitt, and we talked a little bit about exhibiting architecture and preservation of architecture and and her having kind of brought Thomas Heatherwick and Heatherwick Studios to an American audience previously there was no other previous um, North American exhibit on this scale devoted to his work. And so she has been a major player in familiarizing the U.S. audience with his work. Now we know a lot more about him thanks to Google selecting him to be part of the um, collaboration with 
Bjarg Ingels group to work on their new Googleplex expansion. But Brooke was uh, very influential in um, creating that exhibit and having a tour around the U.S. So it was great talking to her. All right, let's listen to it. Okay, definitely want to talk about the Heatherwick stuff. It's very exciting. I don't think he's really been exposed to an American audience and to this degree ever before. Can you talk about how you brought him to the North American audience? Yeah, so it's an interesting story because when I was working at MoCA early on, I started there in 2001. And in 2002, I started going to London for research on another show that I was doing on fashion and architecture. And I would ask people, who should I visit while I'm in London? You know, who's doing interesting work? And somebody tipped me off to Thomas Heatherwick. And at that point, he hadn't done that much. I think he'd just done the bridge behind Paddington Station. So I went to his studio and he was really excited. I guess now he he says, oh, and I couldn't believe this curator from Los Angeles was coming to visit me. And oh my God. And so it was great because it was like him and like four people working away. When was this exactly? 2002. Okay. So wow. A lot has changed in his... 12 years yeah. ago. And it was really great because I saw things that he was working on that I was interested in. And it was you know, just at the beginning when he was starting to get a little more recognition, but still not the way it is now. And so over the years, I kept going there and sort of stalking him. And eventually I said, you know, I'd love to do a show with you. Or, you know, what do you think? And he was like, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And he just was kind of reluctant to to take that step. And then the Victoria and Albert Museum, right around the same time, actually, I did get him to agree to do, so I'll pause there and say that I asked him to do a show, you know, if he would work on an exhibition with me for MoCA. And he was really excited to then pursue that. And that was probably around 2008. So that was like six years into sort of seeing how his studio had developed. And in that time, he moved to a bigger space and he had more people working there. And they started to get larger scale projects and they were working, I think they were just starting to work on the UK Pavilion project. And so that was clearly the project that was going to sort of push them up to the next level of recognition. And so even after I started working with him on the show, then what I would find was people back in LA or wherever would say to me, what are you working on? And I'd say, oh, I'm doing an exhibition with Thomas Heatherwick. And they'd say, who is that? And some of the architects knew who he was because they started to see some of his work and some of them knew that bridge in London or they'd seen other things. But there, he hadn't received a lot of press. And even though he was getting more recognition in the UK, he really wasn't known outside of Europe and then Asia after the UK mm. pavilion at Shanghai Expo in 2010. So that's sort of how that ended up happening. And then it was... I don't know, the timing worked out really well. I worked on the show for close to five years before it opened in September in Dallas at the Nasher Sculpture Center. They ended up hosting the exhibition and being the institutional organizer because I had left MoCA by then and the Hammer wasn't really doing a lot of architecture projects and I already had this kind of going on or on the boards before I started there. So what initially, both as a curator and an architectural historian, attracted you to Heatherwick's work? Well, I liked that he is not trained as an architect, so he's not an architect. He's a designer, and so he was tackling many different kinds of problems, you know, objects, furniture. He'd done some smaller scale buildings as part of his student work, both undergrad and grad school. He went to Royal College of Art for grad school. 
And also that he didn't have a kind of aesthetic or a style. It was more about the best way to solve a problem and the most kind of ingenious way to solve a problem, which may not be really necessarily the most beautiful way to solve a problem. So unlike, say, somebody like Seijima or Ishigami, who came out of her office, that they have that beautiful sort of ethereal, kind of white, delicate sensibility Thomas's work, he couldn't really characterize it in one way or another. It was more like this crazy range of types of projects and, you know, how they set out to solve the problems. And that's why the exhibition's called Provocations, because so they pose these provocations as part of their brainstorming or problem-solving process. And so that show, Provocations, that's currently on display at the Hammer Museum, is that correct? Yes. And then it will end up at the Cooper Hewitt. Right. When exactly is that? Um, it opens at Cooper Hewitt on June 26th and runs through November 1st. And at the Hammer, I think it closes on May 24th or 25th. Okay. So and when you started at Cooper Hewitt last summer, it was kind of a confluence of you coming in while the muse- after the museum had recently expanded. It got 16% more gallery space, I understand. That's right. Or when you were planning the Heatherwick exhibition, did that factor into that at all? Were you able to kind of take advantage of that new space in any way? When I was putting the show together, so one thing that curators are always asked to do and that we want to do is to find other places that will show the exhibition because it means that all the work that you did isn't just up somewhere for three months and then ends and, you know, not as many people see it. So you want as many people to experience the exhibition as possible and for it to have a kind of, you know, reach different parts of the country or different types of audiences. And so One of my colleagues at the Cooper Hewitt, Matilda McQuaid, who's the head of the textiles collection and also an exhibitions curator here, already knew about Thomas's work because she also has a background in in architecture exhibitions. And so when I told her that I was working on the the exhibition way back in 2009, she said, oh, I think Cooper Hewitt's going to be interested and the timing could be great because they already knew that they were embarking on this big transformation. So that Cooper Hewitt actually signed up for the show before the Hammer did. And then it just happened that I went to the Hammer from MoCA and brought the proposal to the Hammer. And then the Hammer said, oh, yeah, we want to do this show, too. So it was really lucky for me. And it was just a total kind of fluke that the show was already coming to the Cooper Hewitt. And then I ended up getting the job here. It seems pretty perfect. So what do you make also of all this, of the news recently announced with uh, Heatherwick and Bjarke Ingels group working together to design the new Googleplex campus? I think it's really interesting. I had known for some time that they were working on this project, but I actually didn't know that it was a collaboration. You weren't allowed to know. I was not allowed to know (laughs) that part, and I wasn't even really allowed to know anything. So I was sworn to secrecy. I practically had to like sign my name in blood on a piece of paper before I went out to LA because we knew that the timing was getting close when it was going to be announced. But I think it's really exciting. And I recently watched the video that Google released that showed Bjarke Engels and Thomas talking about the project. And I think it's a really interesting pairing because they're both really interesting designers to me. And Thomas has this kind of sense of wonderment about him, no matter what he's talking about. And that I think is, is informs how he attacks problems, that he's always sort of in awe of things and excited by things and how things work. And it's 
sort of not about making a statement for him when he makes a project, even though, of course, something like the UK Pavilion is a statement, but it was something that he'd been interested in for a long time of creating these buildings with texture to them. And then Bjarke, I think, has, you know, comes out of OMA originally and has a different way of thinking about architecture and about architectural projects. And so I can see that they would really complement each other. But I think it could be a really interesting pairing because they seem actually quite different from each other too as people. And I think that Thomas will probably bring in more of the natural environment to the project. And, you know, BRK obviously has the experience designing large-scale building projects at this at this point. But they're, I think they're pretty close in age. Thomas just turned 45 and BRK is 40. Or mm-hmm. so. Yeah, which is amazing. Mm, yeah. yeah, just incredible. And also that they, neither of them started, and Thomas Heatherwright didn't end up ever associating as an architect. Mm-hmm. Bjarke wanted to be a cartoonist. Suppose. Right. So, that's, yeah. so, the, so the folklore <laughs> goes. And the, how they've both ended up has Thomas as an inventor, I believe he likes to also associate as. Yeah. It's very, I think it's a really conducive pairing to not only Google's whole iconography, but also just their own personal collaboration. It's very interesting. I was really excited because I would have to say that I'm disappointed that Apple chose Norman Foster to do their headquarters because Apple's known so much for innovation and that Foster, I feel like they're great architects, but, you know, they've kind of had their day already and they're they're almost more conventional now. And the fact that Google went with, you know, young architects that are doing interesting things that kind of stir up things goes along with their character of their company as a, you know, it's not a startup anymore, but it still has that feeling, you know, of these tech companies where everybody that works there is like under 30 years old. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely seems like that. Yeah. So I wanted to also ask, this is a little bit not on the same subject, but about your particular academic training and having a degree in architectural history and whether you made a conscious choice to not go into curation or whether to study any type of curatorial program. Or what led you yeah. into curation I mean, after that? I mean, it's interesting because I didn't really, I have to say at the beginning, I didn't really think about it. And I had no kind of role model or anything as, you know, of a curator or a museum person. But when I first went to, I did art history undergrad and I had a really inspiring professor who taught architectural history. And that got me really interested in architectural history. So then I started to focus on that. And my father is retired, but he was an urban planner and my mother was involved in city politics. So there was that interest in the city and in how cities grow. And so then when I was looking at grad school, I decided that I wanted to study historic preservation and that I wanted to work in an architect's office doing actual hands-on preservation. So that was the sort of what I looked for when I looked at graduate programs. And I ended up going to the University of Virginia because their program was an architectural history master's degree with a specialization in preservation, but it was housed in the architecture school, not in an art history department. So I had to do a summer of studio classes before I could actually get into the master's architectural history program. Then When I was in that program, I realized like a lot of the people that were graduating from that program were going to end up being, they were going to end up writing historic preservation nominations at state historic preservation offices, and they weren't actually going to be restoring buildings themselves, because that was a whole other step after that, that you'd have to go and study building conservation and and really get more involved with something like the Getty or kind of National Monuments Fund, things like that. So 
When I was in grad school, there was an internship that came up the first summer that I was there, and it was at the Octagon Museum in Washington. And the Octagon is the Museum of the American Institute of Architects, and it's in a historic house. So I got this internship, and I ended up working with them on this exhibition and publication, and I really enjoyed it. And then just sort of through the luck of the draw, they connected me with people at the Canadian Center for Architecture, which was just about to open at that point or just starting construction. And they were hiring, you know, completely new staff because it hadn't really existed as a museum before. So I ended up going to Montreal and and working there for six years. So that just sort of started off my museum career. And I think where I was really lucky was that I got my foot in the door in the architectural exhibition area really early. And there aren't that many people because there wasn't really, there weren't that many curatorial studies programs then. And there, there may have been museum studies programs, but I never really knew of programs where you would go to study to be a curator. And then it's interesting because Matilda McQuaid, who I mentioned, who's here at Cooper Hewitt, she was in the same program as me at University of Virginia. So but you didn't know each other. We or did know each times? other. Oh wow! There. So we were in school together, and now we're working together. But we would always say to the University of Virginia, "You should invite us back to your career, you know, to be on a panel about alternate careers for architects and historians, because we were the only two that ended up going to work in museums. And you know, mostly now, I think a lot of architecture curators come in as architects." because they understand architecture and how buildings are made and designed and all of that. But really for architecture and design curators, not that many people, they might kind of come out of decorative arts programs, Mm -hmm. but not really curatorial studies in the same way. So you would say maybe your curatorial career began in the mid nineties or so when you started with Um, CCA? In the mid eighties, mid eighties. Excuse me, excuse me. <laughs> no, that's okay. Well, no, that's even better. I, I was because thinking, oh, maybe I could just you know let, let that go and be like ten years younger. <laughs> but that's even better because then you're even more qualified to answer my question about the scope of architectural exhibitions. How has that changed over the course? Because you've clearly exhibited and and worked with institutions all over North America. How has the curatorial focus and the exhibition formatting changed for things like architecture? I think it's changed, but I don't think it's changed as much as it could. And it to me, it's a really interesting problem. And when I was living in Los Angeles, I taught at SciArc. And also when I worked at Harvard, I taught a seminar there about exhibiting architecture. And I was always really interested in this problem of that you're never exhibiting the real thing. You're only showing representations of it. And how do you really communicate the essence of a building or the character of a building or even the scale or the materiality to people if you can only show a model or, you know, a drawing or a sketch or a rendering. So I think it's something that I've thought about a lot and I haven't really, you know, I think I've gotten there in certain ways, but never completely. And I think it is still a really interesting conundrum. And one, you know, I think with the Heatherwick show, I think that's really interesting because he doesn't really sketch as part of his design process, or I would say he doesn't sketch at all as part of his design process. And they make renderings to show the client what a building might look like or as part of a competition entry. But they're really involved in hands-on making and they have a huge workshop that's the center of the studio and it's really like the heart of the studio. And so as a result, they're making things, like they're making coming up with these machines that they make as a way to create things that they want to 
to do. Like they wanted to create this textured facade for these artist studios in Wales. And so they created this machine that they call the crumpler to crumple these big sheets of aluminum to Very British. get the right texture. Yeah. And it looks like a ringer washer or something. And it's like this sort of jerry-rigged kind of apparatus. And then they made this brochure machine that's in the exhibition as a way to dispense the brochures to to people because they wanted to have it be more of an active engagement with getting your brochure instead of just picking it out of a box somewhere. So that show, I think, really has more kind of vitality to it than a lot of the other shows that I've worked on in the past because there's this, you get the sense of the changing scale of the projects across the studio, of the different prototypes. You have things that are life-size, things that are much smaller scale, and things that are closer to maybe half scale or quarter scale, as well as sort of more refined presentation models. So clearly you've got a lot on your plate doing stuff with provocations for immediately and and ongoing. Um, Do you have anything else that you're working on right now? I have one project that is just in, you know, the very early stages of me thinking about it. And I probably can't really say too much about it because I haven't even talked to the person yet. (laughs) But it's not an architect, but it is architecture related. And then in terms of other exhibitions, something that I'm still really interested in is the fashion and architecture intersection and even the sort of historic side of that. Because when I did the show, it was 1980 to the present. And I think there are a lot of parallels that existed, you know, even pre-20th century or early 20th century that would be interesting to look at. So I have a lot of ideas and, you know, in my position at Cooper Hewitt, it's more um, administrative now. So I don't have as much time to do exhibitions, but I'm still really interested in that. And I'd love to do something with just in thinking about how to show architecture, to use film as a way to show architecture and create more of a actual scale experience of being in buildings. With things like virtual realities, maybe? Or... That I'm interested in. And mm-hmm. Alex McDowell, actually, who's te- who teaches at USC, is somebody that I'm in touch with that I'm, you know, just talking to about ideas of ways to incorporate that into exhibitions or to to use that technology to really enhance the experience. Because I think providing the experience of architecture is really important for people to be able to understand the magnitude really of what architects do. That's a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Brooke. This was great. Thanks for talking with us. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. All right. So if you're in LA, I definitely recommend checking out the uh, Provocation Show at the Hammer. Again, that's going to be up until May 24th. So go and let us know what you think of it. We love hearing from our listeners. If you want to reach out to us, you can reach out to us on Twitter with hashtag Arconnect Sessions, or you can send us an email to connect at Arconnect.com. If you enjoy the show, please consider rating us on iTunes if you haven't yet. And uh, thanks a lot for listening. Thanks to my co-hosts. And we'll talk to you guys next week. Have a good week. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye.